We've already journeyed through six weeks of the Shadow King. And the first six weeks were focused on the origin stories leading up to David's uh, pronunciation of his own leadership and life on the stage of human history. When he goes and he faces in 1 Samuel chapter 17, a monstrosity known as Goliath. This is the pivot point in David's leadership, in David's uh, popularity. All of a sudden, he's an, he is a Hebrew idol. He is a overnight celebrity that, that, that his name is mentioned in all of the streets of Israel moving forward. Today, instead of into origin stories, we start a new chapter in this biopic series, The Shadow King. And I've entitled these next few lessons, Outlaw Anthology. This is the time where David steps from being a hero to an outlaw, to a warrior, but he's an enemy of the state. And we're going to share several different stories of David's life over the next couple of weeks before we take a summer break and kick it back into high gear once David takes the throne. And we'll do that towards August. Um, we'll take a break during the summertime and have some refreshing, fun summer uh, activities and a, and a sermon selection of sermon content during the summertime. But as we t pick up the story now, we're going to fast forward a little bit and I want to show you David's life. Right here in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David pretended to be insane in their presence. What? And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. He's with a group of people. He's eating dirt and, and, and scratching the doors and saliva. He's acting completely out of his mind. What has happened? What, what has taken place from the moment that he took a slingshot and, and took down the uh, Goliath, the giant? What has taken place? Well... What got him here, we're going to get there today, but in order to understand what brought him to this point in his life, we got to back, backtrack a little bit to several weeks earlier. The giant has landed in a cloud of dust there in the valley floor of Elah Valley. All of the Philistines are scared to death. They're struck in awe by their hero falling down. The Israelites who for 40 days have been shaken in their boots, afraid of what Goliath was gonna do. Now they have surged forward against the Philistine opposition. They take on the rest of the enemy because David had stood up when everybody else was bowing out. David stood up in the presence of God. It wasn't David's acumen. It wasn't David's muscles because he's just a, a little pimply teenage kid in this moment. It's not David's leadership ability. It is the supernatural activity of God that has anointed David for this moment, for such a time as this. And the Philistines are being pushed all the way back out of the Israelite territory and toward the enemy city of Gath, their hometown, their capital city. And we pick up the story several weeks earlier that when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine. Women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. Now notice, they did not come out to meet King David. They did not come out to meet the warrior. They came out to meet King Saul. They sang and they danced for joy with the tambourines and the cymbals. Can you picture it in your mind's eye down Main Street? The confetti cannons. <laughs> All of the confetti falling. They're just lined up, are all the military. They're marching and they're smiling. And the women have got their, you know. All the ladies are like, ooh, what's going on? This is amazing. There's King Saul. And this is a, this is a pivotal turning point in King Saul's kingdom. King Saul, King Saul is sitting there in the chariot. He's in a Cadillac convertible chariot with sparklers on the sides waving. And, and he begins to hear the crowd. This, the, and he hears the women and they're singing. And this was their song. Their song was, Saul has slain his... But David has 
tens of thousands. Saul has slain his thousands. <laughs> Cobra coming up. <laughs> and this is the turning point for Saul. Can, can I say something to you? If you're a leader and you've got an employee that is a star, that can become intimidating for you. Don't let it. Had Saul taken this moment, because the women and everybody else were out there to greet King Saul. But he misinterpreted it. He misinterpreted their song. He was still king. Had he taken a moment and said, David, come here. And got up in the convertible chariot with him. And he said, point, and he pointed. He said, this is my boy. This is the guy. Giant killer. What? Giant killer. Come here, dude. Oh. Had he honored David in that moment, people just would have honored the king that much more. Saul's so smart. I bet Saul's the one who trained him. I heard Saul was showing him how to sling that slingshot. But instead, this is the turning point for Saul. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit David with 10,000 and me with only thousands? Oh, yeah, next they'll be making him their king. And so from time, that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul kept a jealous eye on David. You've ever told your kids and they're playing ball, keep your eye on the ball? Well, you can see that now Saul's focus is completely shifted and he's seen everything through the emotion of jealousy. Uh, the primary problem we're seeing here is the overlap of public appearance and private reality. I've mentioned this before, but let me remind you that years earlier, years earlier, Saul had disobeyed God. Samuel, the prophet who anointed him to be king said, you're no longer king. You, have, you don't have the authority to be king. Saul begged him, please just let me be king. Please just let me be king. And he says, fine, you can act like you're king, but you're not the king. There's someone's going to take your place. And in, in, Samuel goes and anoints David in the living room of his home. And now what we see is Saul trying to act like king and he's beginning to feel what should be given to him is not given to him. Why? Because the anointing's not on Saul anymore. It's on the hero David. And he's feeling that. And instead of turning to God and repenting, instead of turning to God and pulling David up into the chariot and saying, God, I'm sorry. I should have let me help. I, I know the character of God from Genesis to Revelation. I'm telling you, God is a God of grace. God gives second chances. He, he gives David multiple chances. You'll see it through his story. God is willing that none should perish. Before he plays wipeout, he provides a way out. I do believe that if Saul had a change of heart and said, God, you know better, that there could have been a succession plan. There could have been a transition. It could have been beautiful. Saul didn't have to waste the rest of his years of his kingdom chasing after David in the desert. But it was this overlap of public appearance and private reality. And today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a fast gallop through a few different geographical places in Israel that we're gonna learn some lessons from David's life as an outlaw. These little lessons compiled is an outlaw anthology to David becoming king. We start in the geographical area of the palace of an insecure king. The Bible said that they came in marching and this, the women are singing, he's slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And the Bible says the very next day. The Bible says in the very next day, Saul began to rave in his house like a madman. Now for some of you younger, that doesn't mean like, that doesn't mean rave. That means uh, he, was, he, he was upset. He was stirred up. And David was playing the harp as he did each day. Okay, so David's, he's come home as a warrior, as the warrior. He's come home as a friend of Saul, as a bodyguard to Saul. He's just playing the harp in the, in the living room. But Saul had a spear in his hand. Now, this is an interesting note that the author makes. Notice that the spear isn't hung on the wall like a pool cue. The spear is currently in the hand of Saul. Now, there's something, if you read mythology, if you read about kingdoms, if you read that kind of lore, 
you'll notice that there's a lot of talk about the king's hand because the king's hand represents the power of the land. It's the, it's the ring that sits on the king's hand that is dipped into the hot wax and seals everything. It is the, by the hand of the king that, that you live or you die. There is power represented. So when it says the spear is in his hand, the author is pointing not to the spear, he's pointing to the hand. Because Saul is taking matters into his own hand, taking the power of the kingdom that's been stripped from him from God by God, and he's wanting to hang on to it anyway. If you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to write this down. Unyielded power will poison you. Unyielded power will poison you. You may not have a spear in your hand, but there is something in your hand. It starts all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Their hands were open before God, bare before God, innocent and unashamed and naked before God. And he says, you're free, you're free, you're free. Enjoy everything, stay away from this one tree. But there was something about the, 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 the look of it. It was the lust of the flesh and lust of the eye and lust of the, the pride of life that, that brought Eve and Adam to want to place the power in their own hand. The enemy said, you can be like God. You can have all that authority in your hand, not just his. And yet for some of us, it's not the garden. It's not a spear. It's that marriage. It's the last word edgewise. It's the money. It's the, it's the fame. It's the, it's, it's, it's your name. It's you making sure that you get yours. It's making sure you don't feel small in front of other people. And so you got to build yourself up and that's putting power in your own hand. And when power is yielded by you, it creates pride and it's the chief sin of all sins. When we have pride, it means I'm God and you're not. I'm gonna be God, you can't be God. There shall be no other gods before me. And many times pride makes you and me a God to ourselves. With his spear in his hand, he yields his power and he suddenly hurled the spear at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. This is the first time. We'll read about it the second time later on. Now, David is a teenage boy still. And Saul is surprised at his quick moves. He had moves like Jagger. And Saul was afraid of David for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. And so Saul sent him away. And here's, here's Saul's idea. Hey, I'm gonna send you away. I'm gonna appoint you commander over a thousand men. Like get out of my house with the harp, take on, take on a belt and a sword and a shield. And David faithfully led his troops into battle. Now this isn't, this isn't very smart thinking for a guy that wants to diminish David. He actually starts setting him up for all these victories. David continued to succeed in everything he did for the Lord was with him. And so when Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. Remember, again, let me say it to you again, unyielded power will poison you. Saul's unyielded power to want to take control of the situation is poisoning his perspective. He's saying, I want this guy to get out of my face. I don't want this guy to be king. I don't want this guy to come after me. But in, so what he does is he gives him more leadership responsibility. He gives him more men. He makes him a general. He's not thinking clearly, but it poisons him. It even poisons him towards his own family. Watch what, watch what Saul does next. One day Saul said, David, I'm ready to give you my older daughter Merib as your wife. Now pause. When David went to the battlefield and for 40 days they had been listening to the yo mama jokes from Goliath and they're cowering in fear and Saul's like, <laughs> or Goliath's like, oh, yo mama. And they're like, you're right, she is so ugly. For 40 days, David shows up and says, this can't stand. Is there not a cause? And somebody says, yeah. I mean, the person who defeats the giant gets three things. Do you remember what they are? They were untold riches, riches of the kingdom. You didn't have to pay taxes for the rest of your life. And you got to marry the king's daughter. So David kills the giant. He's already rich. He's already going to have tax-free living. Woo! 
And he gets the nanny, nanny, boo, boo. He gets to marry the king's daughter. It is setting him up to be the successor of the throne. And Saul is seeing that. And Saul begins to renegotiate the, 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 the whole plan. He says, I'm going to give Merib as your wife. And David's like, oh, yeah, that was, that was coming. But first, you must prove yourself to be a real warrior. What? What? He killed the giant. Be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. He put, I love how he puts the Lord in there on that. Don't you blame the Lord? It's like kids saying, the devil made me do it. You took the cookie. The devil didn't. Beelzebub didn't take that cookie. Saul thought, here's what Saul's thinking. Well, I'm going to send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him rather than doing it myself. Do you see how pride poisons Saul? Because Saul is not only going to lose David in that process, Saul has the possibility of losing all kinds of other men in the process. His jealousy and his pride is blocking him from seeing the true things. Now, we can very clearly see how pride is poisoning, how this whole unyielded power is poisoning Saul. But let me show you a unyielded power incognito. Let me show you an unyielded power in many of our lives, including my own, that has just as much of a deadly consequence if not given to the Lord. Here's, here's a hidden unyielded power. We see it in David, not Saul. We see it in David. Because here is David's response. You can go fight some battles for me and win my daughter Merib, and I'll give, him to, I'll give her to you as your wife. And here's what David says. Watch. Who am I? What is my family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? David exclaimed. My father's family is nothing. And it's a lot easier to see unyielded power that poisons your life when it's, when it's rage and hatred and pride. It's harder to identify when it's insecurities. See, Humility and insecurity are not the same thing. And sometimes under the guise of what you think is humility, you say no to things, you say no to opportunity, you think you're being humble. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not. I could never do that. Or, oh, I know you're just saying that because you're, I know you're just saying that I'm pretty just because you're married to me. You have to say that. That's not being humble. That, 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 that's insecurity. Look, Unyielded power will poison you. Humility is yielded power. Humility is, is me walking in meekness, not weakness, meekness, meekness. Meek ain't weak. Everybody say it, meek ain't weak. Say it, meek ain't weak. If you're meek, you ain't weak. Gentleness is strength under control. Humility is yielded power unto God saying, I, I could, but I choose to yield. I trust in the Lord with all my heart, lean not on my own understanding. I yield to him because his power is mighty. His power is great. His power should be in my hand. I wanna rule with his power by my side, not with my own strength and my own understanding. Humility is yielded power, but this isn't David being humble. This is David being insecure. I'll show it to you next week. After he becomes king, he still struggles with really believing he's king. He struggles with it. Humility is a yielded power. Insecurity is unyielded power. Listen, when you walk in an insecurity based on what somebody said about you, based on a violation that took place, based on a wound that was, was wrong and dastardly and should never have happened, but when you allow that thing to become something that makes you worth less than what God says you are, that's where insecurity seeps in. Look at this. If God says you are worth a hundred, if you feel that you are worth less than a hundred, then you are not living the way God called you to live. God says, you are a son of the king. You're a daughter in, in my eyes. You, you, you are valuable. You are, you are 100 on the 100 scale. You are valuable to me. But when someone says something about us, we begin to hang on to that or we move back or something is hurt. We have a violation. There's a wound. You, you, something happens in life. And we move back from 100 to a 90 or to a 70. Or if you feel like you're at a zero and you are worthless, you're worthless, that's not the way God calls you to live. And that's not God's plan for your life. And some of you think that God wants you to live there. No, he wants you to live in confidence in him. 
in your worth based on what he says about you, not what the world says or didn't say about you. But when you live here on that scale, there are levels of insecurity that you deal with and I deal with. Look, my 13th birthday, I took a group of friends to Worlds of Fun. It's a glorified Six Flags in Kansas City, Worlds of Fun. In front of all my friends and in front of an entire line there at the Timberwolf roller coaster, um, the guy, we'll call him Michael, because that was his name, I remember. <laughs> Michael, some college punk kid, utilizing his summer working at Worlds of Fun, no, no shame in that game. He comes up to me with the dreaded, especially if you're small like I was, I was small, I was small. He comes up with the dreaded measuring stick. It's my 13th flippin' birthday. I'm not quite 48 inches tall. I had a growth hormone deficiency. I was three foot 11 and you had to be 48 inches to ride the ride. And I saw him coming, so I'm spiking my hair. I'm walking on my tiptoes and he comes over. He measures me in front of everybody. He says, you can't ride. The coaster, I, I remember like it was yesterday. The coaster comes in, my mom and my dad and my brother and my brother who's three years younger than me, who's taller than me, get off the ride. And they start going to the chicken exit is what it's called. And I have to walk in front of everybody. And here's what had happened. I, I, I was, I'll just tell you. So I went down the steps. My mom said, what happened? I said, they won't let me ride. And my mom went, anybody ever have a Godzilla mom? Oh, thank God for Godzilla mom in that moment. She's like breathing fire. She says, oh no, she did. She was Godzilla Medea is what she was. Oh no, they didn't. And this was back in the day, you know, this is almost 30 years ago. So like, you know, things were a little bit more comfortable. There was another kid my mom had never seen in her life with her parents walking down who was like up to here to me. She goes, did you just ride the ride? And she goes, yeah, it was great. And she, my mom says to their parents, can I take your daughter up there for a second? And they said, okay, what kind of parents don't do that? Mom grabs me by the shirt, grabs her by the hand. I, I don't even know this girl's name, never got her name. She goes, get up there with me. So we're marching, mom, what are you doing? She marches up the chicken exit back to Michael, who stayed, dude, Michael had no clue what was about to hit him. Mama bear Godzilla Medea in the house. And my mom says, you let her ride. You're gonna let him ride. And he brings his manager out and, she, and the manager measures me. And by this time, I kid you not, I kid you not. By this time, the whole crowd on the other side of the coaster, the coaster's not moving. They are, they are literally chanting, stomping their feet like it's a queen concert. Let him ride, let him ride, let him ride. They didn't let me ride. <laughs> and my mom said, what is your name? Michael, I see it. I'm going to human resources. <laughs> so behind some gift shop, we marched over to the human resources and they measured me and I wasn't big enough. They were, Michael wasn't in the wrong. Michael wasn't wrong. Emotions got in the way. Mom wanted to take the power in her hand. And that's just one example of something. If, if I'm shedding all the layers of the tent on my windows, it was multiple moments like that all throughout school, high school, college, and sometimes even today that when I feel small, it messes with me. Someone makes me feel small, it bothers me. You're not, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna do that to me. 
a normal conversation with my wife can turn on a dime and I can get so defensive. It's, it's, it's not her. But somehow I'm hearing what she's saying and I feel like the kid who's not big enough, who'll never be big enough, who's embarrassed in front of his friends. My wife would never do something like that to embarrass me in private or in public. But there's a power that that insecurity can have over me, friends. So man, I gotta, I, I gotta prove myself. I gotta show myself. I, gotta, I better work hard. I'm gonna be a hard worker, you know? Man, pastor, I know you're busy. Oh, you say that and it's like, oh, they see I'm not small. And it may not be feeling small for you. It may, may be feeling hurt, wounded, open to attack because nobody protected you and they should have. Or they couldn't protect you. They didn't even know. And now you walk through the insecurity and the hurt, the rejection and the regret and the pain. And if that is never yielded to God, moments like that will define my life. So I have to take that spear out of my hand. I have to take that insecurity out of my hand. And I have to remember that men look on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. I have to remember that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I have to remember it's not, it's not what people say about me that matters most. It's what God says about me that matters most. And I'm telling you, I'm trying to be Stupid, vulnerable with you today. So that you won't walk around fighting battles and winning them like David and still have an unyielded power that can destroy you. Are you hearing me this morning? Insecurity is unyielded power. Give it to Jesus. Let him say who you are because what he says matters. What he says matters. So when the time came, though, for Saul to give his daughter Merib in marriage to David, well, Saul renegotiated. He gave her instead to Adriel, a man from Mehaloa. Mahalo you know how you say words with confidence? I just didn't do Mehaloa, whatever it is. Mahalo. Aloha. <laughs> now, in the meantime, in the meantime, instead of getting the wife that was already guaranteed to him, Michael, the daughter of Saul, Saul's daughter Michael had fallen in love with David. She saw him coming in with the confetti cannons and the Saul has slain his thousands. And he's on the horse and it's all slow motion. Like his hair just like, and she's like, mm, mm, mm. show me how to throw that sling shot. And Saul was delighted when he heard about it, but not as a father-in-law should be, a future father-in-law should be. Here's what Saul was thinking. Here's another chance to see him killed by the Philistines. Because, now here's what he said to himself. He said to himself, I'm gonna finally kill David. But to David, he said, hey, today you have a second chance to become my son-in-law. This is why you gotta be careful with in-laws, everybody. I'm just telling you. You have a chance to become an in-law right now. Write it down, write it down. Pride, jealousy, and hatred have no rational boundaries. You aren't you. Snickers says it like this. You're not you when you're hungry. You're also not you when you're prideful, jealous, or insecure, or hate, hateful. You're not you. And you, your logic goes out the door. It leaks out your ears and your eyeballs. When you allow pride and jealousy and insecurity and hatred, it gives you no rational boundaries. You start saying things you never would have said. You start thinking things you never ought to think. You start acting in a way around people. They're like, what is up with them? You just, you just, you, 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 you don't have rational boundaries. And this is how Saul starts to act. So Saul tells his men, hey, say to David, the king really likes you. <laughs> and so do we. Why don't you accept the king's offer and become his son-in-law? Now watch again. When Saul's men said these things to David, he replied, how can a poor man from a humble family afford the bride price for the daughter of a king? He's not stepping into his destiny that God has called him to. So when Saul's men reported this back to the king, Saul told him, no, 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 tell David, tell David that all I want for the bride price, and yes, you read it right, is 100 
Philistine foreskins. That's all I want. I'm not asking a lot. Just give me, just give me 100 Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want, okay? Okay? But what Saul had in mind, duh, was that David would be killed in the fight. I, trust me, if somebody came through one of our doors today and said, I'm here to collect 100 things, they would be dead. We know it, you know it, I know it. We got an incredible security team here you guys don't even know about. <laughs> now that's a crazy scripture. You, you, just be careful reading the Bible, just be careful. That's crazy. But here's an even crazier statement. Are you ready for this? <laughs> Very next scripture. David was delighted to accept the offer. What? David was delighted, he's like, let's go. And watch this, watch this. Before the time limit expired, like he's like, minute to win it, minute to win it. He and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. They doubled it, double portion of the anointing on that. Then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all their foreskins to him. Can you imagine My, Michael, the, the daughter of Saul, is looking out the palace window and there comes David galloping on his white horse into the king's atrium. He's got a potato sack around his back like this. Comes into the king's court. <laughs> like, oh, and she's like, oh, I wonder what it is. It's a dowry for me. <laughs> One of the king's guards like, what is it? Oh, is that SpaghettiOs? And, oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, there are times that you say things not under the anointing, okay? I, not, not under the anointing. So Saul gave his daughter Michael to David to be his wife. I mean, what are you going to do? It's like, well, okay. Do you take him to be your lawfully wedded? I mean, like, it just happens right there in front of the dowry. And when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. And we get back to the point where now David is in the palace. He's married the king's daughter. They've got, they've got a whole penthouse suite in the West Wing. And one day, Saul was sitting at home. Again, look at him with spear in hand. The tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. He was raving mad again. And as David, as David played his harp, Saul hurled his spear at David. But David dodged out of the way and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. Now look at me, everybody. Some of you, you got to put the spear back in the wall. You are fighting fire with fire. Every time you post on Facebook, you're pulling the spear out of the wall and you're hurling it back. David wanted to honor Saul. He didn't understand why Saul was after him. He loved Saul. He, saw, he, he, he viewed Saul as a father figure. And David could have pulled that sucker out and with a flick of his wrist, could have pinned Saul through the neck and shot him 15 feet up against the wall. But he left the spear stuck in the wall. Some of you, retaliation feels good, but it's not what you need to do. You, you're putting it in your hand. You've got to step back and let it go, and you've got to let God do his work. And here's something wise that David is doing. Write it down. Choosing your friends wisely is important. I had these friends four most important words in your life. Choosing your friends wisely is important, but let me show you something. Choosing your enemies wisely is equally important. David chose not to make an enemy of Saul. Even though Saul was after David, David said, I will not be after you. I will love you like, like a, 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 a father figure. I'm not gonna pin you. I'm not gonna cut your throat in the middle of a cave later on in the story that we'll talk about next week. I'm gonna give you grace. I'm gonna give you mercy. I want you to love me. Love me as a dad would love a son. Why won't you love me? And choosing your enemy. Don't make an enemy out of a parent who's trying to teach you something, teenager. 
Don't make an enemy out of someone who's tried it. I mean, it hurts because you got disciplined and now you're all mad at the world. You're mad at every leader. You're mad at your boss because they keep telling you you need to be on time and they don't understand what you're going through and you're mad at them and you're making an enemy out of the people that ought not be enemies. Don't make an enemy out of a brother who said that thing and you, you, you don't even like it and now you, now you can't even sit at a Thanksgiving meal. Choose your enemies wisely. Let God do that. Let God sort that out. And so for sure, sure enough, David fled the palace. David couldn't stay in the palace any longer. And he goes to the little cottage that Michael and them and he owned. A little white picket fence around it. They were going to raise their children there. They were going to have a tire swing in the backyard. And he comes galloping over to his cottage over on the corner of the city of Gibeah. David busts through the door. And Michael is there. He says, baby doll, I'm in trouble. Your dad's thrown a spear at me again. I don't know what to do. Then Saul sent his troops to watch David's house, like the secret police or, or like a Western where they come galloping in at night and they've all got the torches and they're, they're just galloping around the house. Come on out, Davy. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. But Michael, David's wife, noticed something. Michael will be known as, David, as Saul's daughter for the rest of the story. She will, she will be ticked off at, at David later on in the stories. Right now she loves him and she is his wife. But something turns in her own heart. And I'll show you that in a second. Michael warned him, if you don't escape tonight, you'll be dead by the morning. And so she helped him climb out through a window and he fled and escaped. So while they're kind of trying to circle around, he gets, a, he gets a chance. He times it right and he shimmies down the rain gutter in the back. And you know, before he shimmies down, he goes, I love you. She goes, I love you. I love you, girl. I love you, boy. He takes off his cowboy hat, puts it on her, gives her a big old kiss. Later, shimmies down, grabs, grabs another horse out of the barn and hightails it out of there. Meanwhile, Michael's in the house and she took an idol and she put it in his bed, covered it with blankets and put a cushion of goat hair at its head. Like this is like a Ferris Bueller day off moment right here. Like you, 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 you thought you made this up when you tried to trick your mom and sneak out of the house and had all the pillows in the bed sheet. That's from the Bible, everybody. And so when the troops came to arrest David, she told them, oh, he's sick and he couldn't get out of bed. And they look through the, they look through the door and the humidifier's going and they see the, the clump of a person. And they just see his hair there and they're like, okay, okay, we won't mess with him. Here's what's hilarious in this story. Saul sent the troops back to get David because apparently they must have rode back and said, he's sick in bed. <laughs> what? And you did not kill him? Well, he was sick. What do you want us to do? He ordered, bring him to me in his bed. Get the bed, take him to me, bring the whole thing so I can kill him. Okay, boys, let's go back. He says, stop. You want to do something right, you got to do it yourself. So Saul went with them and he busts open the front door of that little cottage. And he says to Michael, why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy escape? Saul demanded, I had to turning point in Michael. Instead of standing up to her dad and saying, dad, this is wrong. David loves you. David has done everything you've asked. He's done more than what you've asked. You stood there and didn't even put your armor on against Goliath. I watched you waiting for my daddy to stand up against that Philistine giant. But David killed him. David killed the enemy. David has been faithful to you. He's loved you. He's calmed you down at night when you couldn't sleep. He's played the harp over you. He has treated with you nothing but respect. 200 foreheads. something turns and her loyalty shifts. He threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. Now to a guy who is driven by jealousy, pride, and hatred, what do you think this is going to do? Even though he's been using his own daughter as a pawn in the story, he's now going to use her own fear as a license to chase him down. Let me talk to the married couples for a second, real quick second. 
You cannot be a queen if you never stop being the princess. The bullseye of any relationship is that a husband and wife together would be the key people that talk about things. You start going to an to a in-law or to a mom or dad first instead of talking it out here. It's, it's not just talking it out. It's divided loyalty. You got to start in the middle. Some of you, that's tough because of how people respond to that. But if you just see yourself as daddy's daughter, you'll never see yourself as a wife. And husbands, like if you always see yourself as the prince of the home and mom is taking care of the prince, let, me, let mom cook you a good meal. I wish, I wish your wife would cook like, like this. You, you start getting this, this division of, of kingdom. And this is what is happening with Michael. So sure enough, David escaped and went to Ramah to see Samuel, the one who anointed him to be king. And he told him all that Saul had done to him. Saul's going, I think Saul's out to kill me. And Samuel's like, thus saith the Lord, I think you're right. <laughs> then Samuel took David with him to live at Naoth. Now, you can see this, and I've highlighted it to show you the goal was that David would stay in the shelter of Ramah to stay in the shelter at Naoth. Naoth is like a Bible university there in the city of Ramah. So we get to the second place, Ramah Bible School. Ramah Bible School. And there David is hanging out. He's helping with chores. He's listening to the teachings of Samuel. They're having worship nights. They're having worship. They're singing the, the, the worship songs and, and they're having just good old services. But when the report reached Saul that David was at Naoth and Ramah, he sent troops to capture him. Again, the secret police come chasing them down. And as they get to the worship service, they're outside the doors and they can hear, look what the Lord has done. And they bust open the door. And when they arrived and saw Samuel leading a group of prophets who were prophesying, the spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also began to prophesy. It's like they busted through and they were coming to get David. But instead Samuel says, keep singing. <laughs> like, like Ursula, just keep singing. And, and uh, they, just, they just keep singing. And the, the Saul's men, they drop their swords and their shield. And they just start weighing, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. David is anointed. David is going to be king. Like they're prophesying as well. So when Saul heard what had happened, he said, no way. And they're like, mm -hmm, it happened. He sent other troops, but they too prophesied. They showed up, dropped the shield, dropped the sword. David's going to be king. The same thing happened a third time. Finally, Saul himself went to Ramah, but on the way, the spirit of God came even upon Saul and he too began to prophesy all the way to Naoth. Like you can't escape. If God's got you, he's got you. It doesn't matter what the enemy throws at you. It doesn't matter what your worst nightmares coming after you. I'm telling you, if God's got you in his wing, he's got you in his wing. Saul himself is crazy. He tore off his clothes and lay naked on the ground all day and all night, prophesying in the presence of Samuel. He completely humbled himself. Write it down. There's protection in the presence of the true king. Don't come to church every single Sunday. Don't be consistent in church just because you feel, well, I better do it to earn. It's like the dowry price for God. It's not the dowry but there's something about protection that happens in the presence of the king. We come in here and we worship together. There's something that reminds you of the hand of God, not your own hand that's trying to yield the spear, not your own energy that's trying to make it happen and help yourself and talk yourself up in the mirror. There's a certain thing that happens, a certain protection that only comes in the presence of the true king. And you don't have to be just on a Sunday to experience his presence. What would it look like if everyday life, everyday matters from cleaning to driving to going to bed at night to having a conversation that you practice the presence of the Lord there's something powerful in the protection that you find when I run to the Lord his name is a strong tower the righteous run to it and are safe there's protection everybody 
in the presence of the true king. And you don't have to be on one of our campuses. You're online right now. You're watching in your kitchen. You're watching in your living room. And I'm telling you, the presence of the true king is right there where you make him home. Where you make him king, that's where his presence is. And this is the heart. This is the house that God wants to live in. This is the house you build for him. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's safe. He's safe and he's sheltered. But something, he gets impatient like you and me. He gets impatient, so he leaves. Instead of living with Samuel, he leaves and he goes to the, a neighboring town. He goes to the town of Nob. And David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Why do you think he did? Because David's like giant killer assassin dude. He thinks, uh-oh, is he here to kill me? Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? What's going on? What happened? David says, shh, the king has sent me on a private matter. I didn't put it in your scripture. I didn't even tell the first service, so you're welcome. Here's the deal. In the temple right, right now where they're having a talk, the Bible says, just this little, little side note, there's a man named Doeg that's, that's kind of like offering a sacrifice. He's kind of in the corner. I don't even know if David notices him. It's Doeg. He's the lead shepherd for Saul. He's the lead shepherd for Saul. Later, he's going to come back into the story. We're going to have to deal with Doeg. Doeg turns on his own people. You're going to see it. It's, it, it. Be careful what you hear. Be careful being the gossip. <laughs> Doeg can't keep it to himself, and it causes a bunch of harm in his life. We'll pick that up later. Ahimelech says, okay, um, David says, he told me not to tell anyone I'm here. I've told my men where to meet me. What is there to eat? He's starving. He doesn't have any food. He left because Saul was chasing him. What's there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. And since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced that day with fresh bread. Listen, does that sound familiar, five loaves? Anybody remember another story in the New Testament where Jesus, there's a bunch of people that are hungry and, and, and they say, give them something to eat and they find a couple of fish and they, they find some loaves. The story about the five loaves and the two fish, that's not a story about Jesus feeding people that were hungry. That's Jesus' way of showing us, I'm the bread. I want you to know that this is a shadow. This is a, this is a, a, a shadow of God is the bread. Jesus is the bread. He's going to be all you need. It's consecrated. It's separated. It's divided out. You can trust him. You can find your sustenance there. You can, you can rely on him. He will feed you. Let the bread of life be what you feed on. And sure enough, he gets the five loaves. And then he's tearing into one of them, chewing it up. And he says, hey. Do you happen to have a spear or a sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. David's running without a weapon. And this is so cool. You can't make this up. This is in the Bible. You ought to read it sometime. Ahimelech says, you know what? Usually in the temple, we don't have any weapons. But it just so happens. It just so happens. And Ahimelech walks. The Bible says Ahimelech walks around. It's like behind the altar, he... he uh, he removes the ephod, which is like this breastplate thing, and, and he picks up this heavy something that's wrapped in all this linen. He goes over to the table and, and he drops it and clang, and, and, and there's dust on the table and dust on the linen. And he begins to open it up. And it's like, ah, there's a lot of Little Mermaid uh, stuff in here today, sorry. Ah, keep singing, and, and, and opens it up. And he says, it's a, it's a sword. It's an iron sword. This is in the Bible. He says, this was brought to us. And sure enough, it is Goliath's sword. The same sword 
that David used to sever the head of the giant just so happens to be in the temple where he gets fed and now he gets his weapon, write it down, number three. There's provision in the presence of the true king. Let him provide the weaponry. Let him provide the word. He's given you his word. Let him provide the sustenance. Let him provide everything you need. You're not Jehovah Jeremy. You're not for Jehovah Judy. He's Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, and he will give you what you need when you need it. You have to trust him in this. I'm preaching better than you're responding today. I know it. I know it. You may not get anything else out of it. I'm getting a lot off my chest today. So as we wrap up, that day, David fled from Saul with Goliath's sword and some loaves of bread, and he went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, if that sounds familiar, Goliath of Gath. This is Goliath's hometown. Goliath's hometown. We get to number four, the enemy city of Gath. I don't know what was going through David's mind. I think it's two things. I think it's two things. It's either, it's either he wants to go kill the king of, of Gath and somehow earn the love of Saul, or he's just out of his mind trying to just take on everybody and he's on a suicide mission. One last thing until I die, I'm gonna give myself to, to conquer the capital city. I don't know. But as he gets in, he gets found out. People start whispering. There is no Twitter feed, there is no Facebook. He does not have a profile picture. There is no Jerusalem Times that has got his face on the front picture. Like, like nobody really knows what he looks like. It's just narration. It's just story from one tribe to the next tribe to one camp to the next camp from one city to the next city. And, and so they start whispering, isn't that, isn't that David over there? Isn't that that guy that had the slingshot? Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. So the servants of Achish said to Achish, the king, isn't that David? He's the king of the land. Isn't the one that they, 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 you know, they sing those, the dances. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's him. I think it's him, Greg. And our story has come full circle. In this moment, David pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. I wonder if he's saying, whoopsie. <laughs> I may have overestimated what I could do here. And sure enough, they push him out. They could have killed him in that moment, but there was this superstition about, about laying your hands on an insane mad person. And they didn't want to touch him. But just, just write it down. Problems escalate outside of his presence. Problems escalate when you're outside the presence of the king. It doesn't mean that if you're in the presence of the king that you won't ever have problems. But I want you to know the closer you get to God, the more your life is transformed. And the more you find the strength from the right source to deal with your problems. But the further away you walk away from God, the more trouble that comes into your life, the more your problems escalate. And you try to take matters into your own hands. Let's be the kind of men and women that start somewhere. Baby steps. Start somewhere. And let's get a little closer into the presence of the king. So David, therefore, he departed and he escaped to the caves of Adullam. This is our last stop today in this outlaw anthology. Outside in this honeycomb type of caves, it's a, it's a complex system where you can get lost in there, there in the caves of Adullam in the desert. David has to steal to survive. He doesn't steal from other Israeli tribes. He uh, steals a horse here and a chicken there. Word gets out that David is at the caves. David's distressed. David doesn't know what to do. He's got no money. He's discontent. He's, he's a little scared. He's an outlaw. He's a mercenary. And here's what happens. Everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented, they gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. If you're an outlaw, the people you're going to attract are 
outlaws. And even though that paints a picture of an old Western sign nailed to a wall, can I tell you that you and I on our best day are outlaws? We tried to live in the law. We're not good enough. We're not perfect enough to live by the law. We find ourselves outside that law. So Jesus fulfills the law. And Jesus came to seek and save those who are in distress. You don't know where to turn. The true king, the shadow king. Every one of us owes a debt that you cannot pay, I cannot pay. Jesus paid your debt. You may feel discontent. Why can't it be more? Why can't it be this? Why can't it be that? But when you find Jesus, you learn contentment. You learn that he's all you need. And Jesus will lead you and guide you, just like David led these. And it's in this cave that David doesn't have to go to the temple at Nob anymore. He doesn't go, have to go to the Bible school anymore. He makes the cave the temple. He makes the cave the worship moment. He makes the cave his devotion area because he will write several psalms. And it's in this cave, he writes about the cave in Psalm 142. Even the Bible puts this header on one, Psalm 142, a psalm of David regarding his experience in the cave. It's a prayer. And here's what David writes in this moment of his life. I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. I pour out my complaints before him. Some of you are pouring out your complaints, but you're pouring out your complaints in the wrong place. You're not getting the satisfaction you need when you pour out your complaints. It's because God can handle it. God can handle it. Pour it out to him. Don't bottle up. Pour it out. When I'm overwhelmed, you alone know the way I should turn. I have read some terrible advice on Facebook. Stop pouring it out on Facebook. Pour it out to Jesus. I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. These are David's words. But then he turns it. He rewinds himself. He reminds himself. He, he strengthens himself in these words. I, then, then I focused on you. Then I prayed to you. Oh, Lord, I took the spear out of my hand. I took the insecurities out of my hand and I offered my hands up to you. Oh, Lord, I said, you are my place of refuge. You are all I really want in life. Write it down. When his presence is all I have, his presence is all I need. Learn the lesson that David learned the hard way. When you're in his presence is all. When you live in the presence of God, when you practice the presence of God, even if it's all you have, I'm telling you, everybody, it's all you need. Come on, both locations. Nacogdoches, would you stand with me? Lufkin Broadcast, would you stand with me? Come on, let's offer that to the Lord. We're gonna sing this song together as an anthem of our dedication to Him, the presence of God. Father, we know that you are faithful, that when stuff attacks, when things come against us, the Spirit of the Lord sets up a standard against it. We don't have to worry about it, we can pray about it. We trust you, we need not our own understanding. We live here in the presence. God, we invite you. Speak to us today. Come on, let's sing this together. I know your past is broken, but you can move on. It's over now. Here in the presence of the Lord. Tired of running, running. Be still and know, be still and know he's in control. Here in the presence, pour out your heart to Jesus. Pour out 
He's always enough. Even when we try to do it on our own, He's always already taking care of it for us. Maybe you're in this place this morning and you're thinking, man, I really, I really should get off the throne of my own heart. The provision, the protection, all of the things He has for me is, it's available. I just need to give it to Him. I need to stop trying to do it myself. Maybe you're in here this morning, maybe you're in Nacogdoches online and you're like, today's the day I need to just give it over to Him. As we pray, I just would ask maybe that you would just, in your own heart, say, Jesus, today I give you my life. Jesus, today I give you everything. Jesus, today I step off the throne and I allow the one true king who owns everything, who could give me everything I could ever ask or need or think of more than I could ever even know. Maybe that's you in here for the first time or a fresh time. As we pray, would you just, in your own heart, just surrender to him this morning? Jesus, we thank you that you are the King of Kings. You're the Lord of Lords. You are the perfect sacrifice. You're the perfect individual who died for us. And when we try and try and try and try and fail, we know that you already have paid the price. You've already succeeded. You've taken everything for us. There's no reason to hide. There's no reason to feel shame. Today, Jesus, we just step off the throne of our hearts and we just give our lives to you. For those of us in here for the first time or a fresh time, I just pray that you would allow us just to step off our throne and allow the one true King to guide and lead our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.